0: that's all the time I have, so (laughs) it's good to be with you guys. Uh, It's always great to come and and visit other redemption congregations. Um, The way I describe it is it's like going to your cousin's house, like you know you're part of the same family, but there are some some differences, and so it's good to be here. I was... um, fortunate enough to be able to be in Tucson over the summer and it was great to be down there. I'm, I'm from Tempe. My family and I just moved into Tempe uh, to be close to the church. I started full time in January. Um, and so it's really, it, it's great to be near Tempe, near the, the college, um, near ASU and all of that. But it's also good to be here at Gateway where I'm not the oldest person in the room. So thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, As you guys heard, we have a chunk of Scripture to work through today. And for some of us, this may uh, be a familiar passage. Uh, For others, this may be the first time. Either way, there's a lot going on here. This is a passage that throughout the history of the church, leaders in in the church have looked to as how we live out our Christian lives, and it was an intentional decision by the leadership of redemption, the, the, the lead team, and the preaching collective. How are we going to approach this? Are we going to break up each paragraph and, and talk about anger and talk about lust and talk about divorce and oaths and so on and so forth? Or will we keep this together? Because that'll shape how we engage it. So if you're here expecting really good sermon about lust and anger and divorce and all of these other things, I promise I will disappoint you. Okay. There are plenty of sermons that have been preached on that. We're going to take a different angle today. And we're going to think through this, through the lens of who, who is talking to us. We know that it's Jesus, but Jesus says that the words he speaks come from the Father. And so how do we imagine God through the lens of this passage? Um, Jesus concluded the, the previous passage by telling the people that unless their righteousness surpassed that of the Pharisees, And the scribes, the religious leaders, the people they look to for spiritual direction, unless their righteousness surpassed theirs, they would not enter the kingdom. That's a tall order. It's a great passage for a visiting preacher. But this is how Jesus is going to flesh this out. This is how we can have our righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. So I'm excited to share with you guys today. Will you pray with me before we jump in? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for time together. We pray that you would distract us from our distractions. That you would help us to focus our gaze on you. God, that you would speak through me so that we could more clearly see, know, and experience who you are. And that that reality would shape us as we go out to live all of life all for Jesus. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, I grew up in Northern California, um, didn't grow up going to church, started going to church end of junior high, early high school, and didn't really know what this whole Bible deal was. I didn't grow up in a family that read the Bible. Um, My interactions with scripture was watching football games and you know, the John 316 guy. I knew that that had something to do with the Bible and I had heard, I think through like a scary movie that I watched way too young that the book of Revelation was really scary. That was about the extent. So as I started going to youth group, um, someone gave me a Bible. And so like any book, I I picked it up, cracked the thing open and started reading in Genesis and thought that it was weird. And then I got to Exodus and it became more weird and kind of through the law and after Deuteronomy, said this is the strangest book I've ever read and I am pretty sure I don't wanna read it again. Um, I don't see people like killing animals when I go to church. So I'm not really sure how this applies to me. Fast forward a couple months, I'm at a summer camp, and, and my youth pastor asked me um, some kind of like Christian-y question like, how much time are you spending in God's word? I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> right, we, if you've been around church, you're familiar with this sort of jargon, but for the first time, it's kind of time in God's word, I don't, I don't know. So he suggested I start with the New Testament. And I started reading this book of Matthew and it blew my mind because like as a young high school student who was very impressionable and naive, I believed it. And like I read it as though it were true, right? Imagine this, like if we engage scripture like this. So I remember being at summer camp and reading a passage and being so blown away by it. I literally ran to find my youth leader. And I told him, I'm like, you're never gonna believe this. you probably never heard of this. This is amazing. There was a guy who was blind and Jesus just touched him. And then he could see. And everyone else who had been around church was like, well, yeah, but for me, I never heard that before. I went to school with a girl who was blind and I couldn't fathom that like this guy just touches her face and she can see. And I was excited. I was really excited when I read these passages of how Jesus was walking with people and talking to them and healing them and there was miracles and I was like, this is awesome, I wanna do miracles. So I kept reading and then I would get to passages like this and I wasn't as excited. I had a different feeling and maybe some of you can relate to this. This is the feeling that comes a couple times throughout the school year. At my high school, they would send progress reports home. And they would send report cards home. And we had a long, the driveway was not close to my house. It was a long walk to the driveway. And I still, I can feel that walk. In the pit of my stomach, that walk to the mailbox, knowing that the progress report was waiting for me. Knowing that the list of tardies, absences, missed homework assignments, Grades was waiting for me and I'd have to carry this progress report back up the driveway and hand it to my dad and my school was especially evil. So they would mail them out like on a Friday, right before the weekend. You guys remember this? This is horrible. It's torture. I remember that feeling and I remember reading through passages like this and hearing about anger and it's not just about anger, but or it's not just about murder, but it's also about anger. It's if you call your brother a fool, it's if you have bitterness in your heart. It's not just about adultery, but it's also about lust. It's not just how we retaliate, but about how we forgive. It's not just eye for eye, but it's about loving enemies, and I remember feeling that. And even at a young age, I knew I didn't measure up. We know this, we know this feeling, whether it's at work, whether it's in our relationships, we know this feeling in the pit of our stomach. We know that the judgment is there. It exposes us when we want to hide. And so what do we do with passages like this? How do we approach it? A lot of how we will approach this will be dependent upon how we view God. So years ago, I lived in California uh, I, was, I had a great opportunity to, to teach at a private Christian high school. And, and I taught a mission elective that kids would take um, for their, their Bible credit and we would talk about the theology of God's mission. And I would start the class each semester the same way. I'd have the students close their eyes. You guys don't have to if you don't want to. And I would say, imagine God. Like really, right now, I would encourage them, imagine God. God, what does God look like? Is he big? Is he small? What's his body language? If you can imagine his face, what emotion is conveyed? Is he looking at you? Is he looking away from you? What is his face saying to you? And I would ask them if they were brave to to share how they viewed God. And I would hear a whole range of answers. Some would say something along the lines of, like, God is Santa Claus. God's, like, the genie in the movie Aladdin. You know, gives me what I want when I ask him. Sometimes, like, Christmas, it's not really what I want, but it's still present, so whatever. Other answers were more sobering. I remember one girl said, God is like an angry principal who has a clipboard and a whistle. And every time I make a mistake, the principal makes a check mark and blows the whistle, so everyone looks at me. What a weight to bear. Another student said, I view God like my dad. He's much more involved with important business than he is with me. I remember a silence kind of crept throughout the classroom after she shared that. Everyone felt the heaviness of that statement. And then, A 14-year-old sophomore named Spencer raised his hand. In the middle of this heavy moment, he says, Mr. V, God's like Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. My response is like, dude, she just shared something really vulnerable. What are you talking about? He said, no, 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 Mr. V, I'm being serious. God is like Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Do you guys remember the crocodile hunter? Right? He had the khaki suit, the Australian guy, and he'd run around with the animals. You guys remember this guy? (laughs) No, somebody said no. He was on a TV show on Animal Planet and and he would engage with animals and teach people about animals. So this is what Spencer said, said, Mr. V, God is like the crocodile hunter. He loves the animals. The crocodile hunter cares about the animals. He's devoted his life to the animals. He teaches people how to engage with the animals in a safe way. He builds these habitats of safety for injured animals. He teaches people how to care for animals. He spends his time with the animals. His wife also works with the animals. His kids are involved with the animals. Every aspect of his life shows his love for the animals, to the point that he was even swimming with a stingray that stung him in the heart, and he died being with the animals. I was blown away. I thought this kid was making a joke, but he taught me a profound theological concept in saying that God is like the crocodile hunter. And so how we view God shapes how we respond to him, how we respond to his word, how we live out our faith in community. So for me, and maybe for some of you guys, you can relate to this, for most of my Christian life, I may not have had the language for this, but the concept was I viewed God like the heavenly Spiritual IRS. (laughs) Some of you are small business owners and you can relate. I would read through passages like this that said, it's not just about murder, it's about anger. It's about bitterness. It's not just about adultery, it's about lust. It's not just about this certificate of divorce, but it's caring for the vulnerable. It's not just about oaths, but it's about walking with integrity. It's not just about eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but it's about loving enemies. And I could formulate in my heart this checklist, okay? If I add up line one, line two, line three, line four, so on and so forth, I would get my, like, number, right, like on your W-2, and then I would assume that I had like some good, like, ah, I, I tithed this week. I read my Bible one time. I think I, I probably, pr- I think I prayed before a meal at some point so I could do my good work deductions and hope that it kind of like evened out. That's really how I viewed God and how I would approach this passage. So Jesus just got done saying to his audience, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and Pharisees. The Pharisees had their checklist. They knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. They had all of the laws. If you guys were here last week, you saw the great video explaining the laws. And they had laws that they added to those laws, laws on top of laws, to ensure that they could mark every good box on the checklist. So that at the end of the day, when it was time to file the tax returns, they'd come out about okay. But I'd like to propose, what if that's not an accurate view of God? So we imagine God. What if God, you know, we say King of Kings, Lord of Lords, what if he's not really the auditor of auditors? What if he's more of the adoptive father? Paul talks about this in the book of Romans in, in chapter 8. He talks about this concept of adoption. He says, so then brothers, we are debtors. Our, our spiritual tax return doesn't even out. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will feel in the pit of your stomach the long walk to the mailbox. These are high standards. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons of by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, oh, there it is. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I'd like to invite you today. Imagine with me. Uh, imagine that you're in a place like I was in that summer camp camp, a few years ago in high school, and this is fresh. This isn't something that you've felt the weight of for years and years and years, but this is new. What if Paul was serious? What if we were adopted by a loving father? Some of you guys and some people that you know here have engaged in in foster care. You've been foster parents. You've even adopted children into your own family. You can remember what it's like waiting for that day, waiting for that time when the adoption would go through. You guys can visualize as a parent, the longing for the child to be your own. We, we have two, one of them is, is two and a half. His name's Micah. He's, he's in the childcare here. If you hear any loud bangs or screams, it's probably him. And, and we have a five year old and we remember pregnancy. The waiting, the waiting, the anticipation, the kind of like nervous fear, that energy, knowing that the child would be brought into our family. So let's view this passage through the lens of adoption, the lens of a parent and a child. God, not as our auditor, but as our loving adoptive father. Mm-hmm. How how would we understand what God wants from us through this passage? My wife and I just celebrated our our seven-year anniversary. She's right here in the front. And we were kind of reflecting and talking and and we think about uh, different experiences that we've had. And one of my favorite experiences now, you know, in hindsight, was meeting her family for the first time. I was from, I'm from Northern California. My wife's from Southern California. And as we drove down, she was kind of sharing little bits of information about her parents. And so we're kind of talking, yeah, they're great people. My mom cooked a bunch of spaghetti. It's going to be delicious. She's really excited to feed you. Yeah, I'm really excited to eat. Yeah, you know, my dad, um, my dad was a Marine. Like, oh, oh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really good. Okay. Yeah, he was in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, She told me he can... Sometimes kind of come across a little intimidating to guys that are meeting them for the first time. I started to get a little sweaty. Like, okay, let's go meet him. So I love my father-in-law. He's a great guy. This is how we met. shook my my hand. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm Will. I'm George. Yeah, great, great, great. We sat down. They had two couches that kind of made an L. They were perpendicular. I sat in one corner. He sat in the other. And the entire time, he stared at the side of my face without saying a word. He was silent and very intimidating. Now, we have a great relationship. He's a wonderful grandfather to my boys. He's a great father-in-law, and I love him dearly. But If I didn't know that, I I was nervous experiencing it. If she didn't give me that heads up, I would've been in big trouble. So I had to extend the same courtesy to her. We spent early in our relationship a a Christmas with my family. So in order to understand my family culture at Christmas, you have to know one thing, the movie National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. This is our family tradition at Christmas time. It starts after we eat the Thanksgiving meal in November, <laughs> we watch Christmas Vacation. It culminates after the Christmas family dinner, we watch Christmas Vacation. And as many times in between as we can fit in Christmas Vacation, we watch Christmas Vacation. So with my family, we do this really fun and, and you know kind of endearing thing where we've seen this movie so many times we recite the line like a split second before the actors will say it in the movie, which if you're in the family, that's like super funny and it's cool and all of that. If you're not in the family and you're not familiar with this movie, turns out it could be annoying. Not really sure why, but my wife got to experience this. So whatever the family setting is, there's a culture of family. There's an understanding of of what our family does, who we are, what makes us special and unique. And for you to come into our family, you have to understand that culture. Somebody who's looking to welcome an outsider in that family will take some time to explain this culture. Hey, be prepared. If you come to my parents' house, you're going to eat a ton of food. Hey, just so you know, my dad may be kind of intimidating. We tell people these things. So, if Jesus isn't describing the heavenly auditor, but he's describing instead the loving adoptive father, that'll shape how we engage with this. What if Jesus is telling how to get along in his family's culture? What if it's not burdensome? What if it's an invitation? What if this is Jesus' way of welcoming us into his family, into his father's kingdom? In order to get along, you have to understand what my dad's like. And after you spend some time with him, you're gonna start to resemble my dad. My kids do things like me. I don't tell them to. They just pick up those traits. Some of them are good. Some of them are a little questionable. (laughs) Sometimes, when my kids are in one room and they want to get the attention of my wife, they'll say, Hey, babe. I didn't teach them that, but they heard me say it enough that now they say, Hey, babe. We pick up the traits of our family. Jesus here is outlining some of those traits. God revealed what he was like, he's revealed what he's like throughout all of Scripture, but in Exodus, he gives us a glimpse. He has this interaction with Moses in in Exodus chapter 34, and he says this, the Lord passed before him, the him here is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Can you guys keep this on the screen for a minute? So, So let's think through this. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. I tell you, don't be angry in your heart. Because my dad is slow to anger. He said that, um, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't even lust. Because my dad is faithful. You don't need to take an oath. Because if you're going to be like my dad, his faithfulness endures. So you should be the same. You've heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But instead be merciful. Because that's what my dad is like gracious, even to the point of loving your enemies. Because if we're going to be adopted into this family culture, we're going to start to take on the traits of the family, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but out of joy, from a glad heart, a joyful heart. We know what it's like to take that long walk to the mailbox. We know what's on the report card, especially when Jesus kind of flips our understanding not of what's the line I can't cross, but how deeply can we fall in love with the Father? These are different concepts. If you guys have have ever seen the movie um, The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston, it's a little bit older. My wife made me watch it when we were dating, and I, I... didn't really care for it, but there's this really great scene in the beginning where um, there's a couple and they have a dinner party and everyone leaves and it's late and there's dishes and the dishes need to be washed. And so this concept of washing the dishes, this issue creates conflict in the relationship. And, and he says, I don't really, let's do the dishes tomorrow. I don't want to do the dishes. And, and Jennifer Aniston says, that's the problem you don't want to want to do the dishes and he says, who wants to want to do the dishes? Nobody wants to do dishes. Well, I want you to want to do the dishes. Who wants to do the dishes? And it's this conflict that I didn't get until I was married (laughs) and not quite so young and immature. The dishes are not the issue. The heart is the issue. My wife stays at home with our, our children and they're wonderful boys. One of them's in the front, squirming right now. But I understand that that's draining for her. Because I love her, I'll do the dishes. I'll take out the trash. I don't want to do the dishes. I want to love my wife. I want to serve my wife. Now she's in the room, so I need to say that like I should probably do more dishes and take out the trash more frequently. But you guys get the concept. This is what God is after. He's not looking for the checklist. He's looking for the heart. Uh, Imagine a marriage. Hey babe, I didn't kill you today. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't create some oath with someone else. And when you did something really mean to me, I didn't just go ahead and do something really, really mean back to you. That's not really where you cultivate a loving relationship, right? If the standard is I didn't murder you today, it's probably not the foundation for a healthy marriage. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's not the bare minimum. It's not what line can't we cross. Instead, it's welcome to the family. Now, let's try to look like dad. This is how he ends it here. All of these imagines of this heavenly father, this adoptive father, are actually what Jesus is pointing to. In verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The original language does something very unique. The original language says, you will be becoming perfect. And not just perfect in the way that we think about perfect, without error, it's more of complete, fullness. If you guys have heard this concept of shalom, the way things ought to be, that's what we will be growing into. This is the first of 10 times throughout this sermon when Jesus will call God Father. We're used to this imagery. We hear this all the time. We sing songs about it, so on and so forth. But it, at the time, for the original audience to hear someone call God Father would have been strange. It would have been scandalous. We don't think of God as Father. God is the king. God is the judge. God is the IRS, but God is Father. There's intimacy there. This adoption creates a family bond. John Piper talks about this as as he talks about adoption, and he describes it in this way. He says, adopted children do not infer that they are our children by checking out the adoption papers. A spirit pervades our relationship that bears witness to this reality. Like other children in the family, they all cry, Daddy. Praise God that he gave us both legal standing and, as his children, the very spirit of his son, so that we find ourselves saying from a heart of deep conviction, Abba, Father. If you guys are unfamiliar, this this word Abba, we could translate as Daddy. Daddy. So we're imagining God. Imagine that intimacy. We get older. We call him dad. We call him pops, if we have a relationship with him at all. But imagine this ideal, this ideal, loving, heavenly father, and him just waiting to hear us call him daddy. There's warmth and welcoming, grace, love, forgiveness in that. And this shifts how we approach a passage like this. This shifts it from the long walk to the mailbox to get our report card and more towards a dad who is for us. Because of the work of Jesus, right? We still can't achieve any of this on our own. But instead of needing big shoulders to bear this burden, we need outstretched arms reaching up to our dad. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this. This quote is going to come from a book called The Screwtape Letters. If you're unfamiliar with The Screwtape Letters, I highly recommend it, but you need to understand the context. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that is basically a series of letters from an older demon to a younger demon instructing him on how to make a human not walk with the Lord anymore. Okay, so it's kind of a different perspective. And so in this chapter, he, the older demon, the teacher, is telling this younger demon, look, only have him think about the good times. And when he fails, hammer him. Let him know how guilty he is. Make him feel the shame. Make him feel that distance from God because that will distort his view of his heavenly father. C.S. Lewis says this He, meaning God, wants them, meaning us, to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. Picture a toddler. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased, even with their stumbles. The older demon says, by any means necessary, do not let them think about this concept do not let them picture themselves as the toddler who's learning to walk. And God is the loving father who's encouraging it. Thankfully, both my boys can walk now. They're sometimes pretty good at it. The oldest one is pretty fast. He's a good runner. The youngest one falls down all the time. When they were learning to walk, we did not yell at them. We did not punish them when they fell down. We cheered. We went wild. We took pictures and posted them on Instagram and Facebook. And if Snapchat were around then, I'm sure that they they would have been Snapchatted all over social media because this was an exciting occurrence. We've been waiting for this milestone. What if that's how God views us? What if he's encouraged with our will to walk? What if he knows that the son had to pay the price? so that we could be welcomed into the family and adopted. He's just excited to have us with him in his kingdom. Now, I get in a room this size with this many people, not all of us have this loving, happy relationship with our fathers, and so sermons like this can feel a little bit uneasy. I understand that, trust me. My parents divorced when I was five, and I didn't move in with my dad until I was about 13. And at times in our relationship, it's been strained and difficult. So I understand that. This group of us, a couple years back, some young guys, similar stories, were talking. Many of us had young wives. Most of them were pregnant. and, And we asked this question, how the heck do we figure out how to be a good dad? None of us had a great example. So what do we do with that? One of my friends kind of challenged us. He says, tell your kids what you want your dad to say to you. And we all kind of, good idea, sure, sure. You know, we're guys, right? Like, we're tough. We're macho. We're not going to, like, get all emotional and mushy or anything. (laughs) But I remember when my oldest son was born thinking about this and feeling really nervous and really vulnerable and asking God, like, okay, help me. Like, I, I wanna have this conversation. I wanna tell him. He's like 18 months old, so he doesn't really get it, but I know that this is important. And so that began this, this conversation that we have. And we don't have it every day, but we have it more often than not. We have it when there's some consequences and he needs some discipline. We have it when big life events happen. My oldest just started kindergarten and he's doing great, and we had it on that first day of school. But the talk goes something like this. I love you because I love you. There's nothing you can ever do to make me love you anymore, and there's nothing you can ever do to make me love you any less. I love you because you are my son. I love you when you score goals in soccer and when you don't score goals in soccer. I love you when you run fast and when you don't run fast, when you do a good job at school and when you don't do a good job at school. I love you because I love you. That will never change. I pray that you'll be a leader and not a follower, a giver and not a taker, that you will love God and that you will love people, but no matter what, I love you because I love you. Church, what if that's what God is saying to us? I love you because I love you and because I love you be welcomed into my family. This is what it looks like to be a part of my family. We don't give ourselves over to anger but we love because God loves. We don't give ourselves over to sexual immorality and and to lust, but we remain pure because God is pure. We don't need to swear oaths because God is faithful to his commitment. And so we strive to live with integrity, faithful to our commitments. There's no need for retaliation because God is sovereign. He has given us an example of love to follow. And we can love our enemies because we, too, at one time were enemies of God. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. This is what makes the shift. This is how we no longer see God as the heavenly IRS, but as the loving, caring, welcoming, adoptive father.